Amen. Well, a couple of housekeeping things really quickly. One, this is the second time in uh, three weeks that my wife was supposed to read the gospel reading, and in my excitement, I just got right in her way. So maybe next week, we'll figure that out. So sorry, sweetheart. Um, also, for our members and anyone watching today, I think it's important just to mention that our sister, Gwen Halterman, is back with us today. It's been a long year. Uh, we still have some that have not returned, but the shots are rolling out. So praise God. I'm, I'm so glad to have you with us. You've heard the idiom, well, the honeymoon is over. Maybe you have unwisely used this phrase. The newness of the marriage has worn off. You used to giggle and snuggle and flirt and dance in the rain. Now you fight over who's going to do the dishes. Now you don't even sit next to each other on the couch while you go into a TV trance together. (laughs) You've never experienced maybe that kind of progression in marriage, but you probably have in some form or fashion. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe a friendship has just fizzled out. Maybe your dream job has lost its luster. Is it possible that kind of thing could happen to a Christian? Is it possible that a Christian could lose their love for God? How could that even happen? When you get married, you can't imagine ever losing the chest-bursting joy for your spouse. You can't imagine ever not feeling excited about them. Maybe you feel that way about a new toy that you got or a new job that you have or maybe a new faith that you have. Can you imagine waking up one day and having no love for God? Maybe you don't have to imagine. Juan Sanchez, a pastor in our area in a book called Seven Dangers about our text today says, it's not hard to abandon love. It doesn't happen all at once. Think of the new Christian. With great zeal, she devours the Bible, consumes two or three Christian books a week. But as her knowledge increases, so does her pride. Before she realizes it, she feels she's grown past most Christians around her. Unlike her, she thinks to herself, they're lazy in Bible reading. Unlike her, they're not serious about their sin. Unlike her, they're too rooted in the world. As spiritual pride grows, our willingness to judge others increases. And as our willingness to sinfully judge others increases, our love for them grows colder and colder. In the next chapter in Revelation, this is what we are going to see first. The church, the church herself, has abandoned the love that she had at first. Could that be us? Could that be you? Let's pray. Father, would you give us grace this morning as we see in our text, eyes to see, ears to hear, whatever we need to hear, Father, for every conviction that we need, for every way that we need you to stir and to hurt and to prick our hearts and our souls. Don't leave us alone. Please don't leave us alone. In all the ways that we need to be encouraged to keep going forward to keep walking in obedience and love, even when love is painful and hurts, would you help us to continue walking in such faithfulness? You know all the ways in which we need to repent. You know all the ways we need to continue in faithfulness. Would you work in every single individual heart and mind? Would you help us be prepared to hear truth about ourselves? The Spirit's leading and convicting about ourselves. Would you help us to be honest as a church? Would you help us to love you? We love you, Father. We do pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're going through the book of Revelation. 
Uh, if you're new to our church, this is the book that we've been preaching in for several weeks. The regular diet at our church is to preach through books of the Bible. We believe that all of it is inspired by the Lord God himself, that there is no part of it which is less important than the other. So we go through all of it a little bit at a time, even the weird, scary reputation parts like the book of Revelation. And so here we are. We are about to take a big shift in the book of Revelation, a big shift in our mindset. In the past weeks, we've been talking a lot about the context of Revelation, the context of the audience of the book of Revelation. We've discussed pretty much every week the context for the audience of Revelation is persecution. The church is hard-pressed. The church is opposed In January, before we begin Revelation, we mentioned in our series there that the U.S. church, for example, is experiencing kinds of opposition legally and culturally and politically. But what does Jesus see? Jesus turns from the idea that the church is being persecuted and needs to endure to something different. Jesus is like a priest among the lampstands in the temple. And go back and flip over to Revelation 1 and look at verse 12 through 13. This letter to the church in Ephesus begins with this vision of Jesus Christ. John says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man. It's an important phrase through Scripture. It's pointing towards Christ, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. These lampstands we saw were depictions of the lampstands in the Jewish temple. This passage depicts Jesus as the great high priest in the temple, ministering to the churches like a priest would minister to lampstands. And these lampstands we saw back in Exodus 25 and 27 were designed to look like olive trees and and almond trees to depict a garden so so that Jesus as a high priest is even seen, the priests in the temple period are seen as gardeners, pointing us back to the Garden of Eden. And the temple... In the priest in the temple, their job is to keep these lamps, these lampstands in Moses' temple lit 24 hours a day. Keep worship going. Keep the light, the lamps lit. And now Jesus is before the lampstands doing that kind of ministry, keeping the lights going, tending to the lampstands. But we see that these lampstands, this image that we get, they're not gold. They're not in a temple of brick and stone. These lampstands are the churches. They're the church. Jesus is tending, not lampstands of gold in some earthly temple, but the churches themselves. He's tending worship in the churches themselves. Like a gardener watching over his blossoms. What does Jesus find What does Jesus see? Jesus comes among the lampstands and he sees the issue is not only persecution from the outside of the church, but persuasion for the church to become unfaithful. Not only is the church being oppressed by opposition, the church is being tempted into unfaithfulness. Not merely beaten into denying Jesus, but tempted to disobey him. So if you look through the letters, you can see, for example, in Ephesus, they have lost their first love. In Pergamum, they are holding false teaching. They're eating food sacrificed to idols. They're participating in sexual immorality. In Thyatira, they are giving in to the seduction of Jezebel. In Laodicea, they are lukewarm in the midst of their very great prosperity. Only to Smyrna and Philadelphia does Jesus refer to imprisonment, to any kind of hardship or death. Let's consider for a moment that the battle may not always be fair and always, may not be always in front of us, not always a head-on attack. 
The enemies of God do not make war on the saints like the old Civil War battles where the red and the blue, they just march out and they stare at each other. Someone fires the first shot, then they just march at each other. And you know where everyone's coming from. You know where the battle is. It's more like the Cold War espionage kind of warfare. It's sneaky. It's tempting. It's luring people to the other side. But we see here in this passage, Jesus knows what's going on in the church, and he knows perfectly. Jesus knows what's really going on and what's really going to potentially steal away the faithfulness and the worship of the churches. Look with me at each introduction to each church. Chapter 2, verse 2, first to Ephesus. What does Jesus say first to the church in Ephesus? Chapter 2, verse 2. I know your works. Chapter 2, verse 9, what does he say? To the next church, I know your tribulation and your poverty. Chapter 2, verse 13, I know where you dwell. 2, 19, I know your works. 3, 1, I know your works. 3, 8, I know your works. 3, 15, I know your works. I know the churches perfectly. This is the issue that the churches are facing. This is what will steal them away from worship, what will make them useless as witnesses. And what might even incur the wrath of God himself? What does Jesus know about Ephesus? When Jesus gets to this first lampstand, the church in Ephesus, what does he know? What does he see? In summary, he sees loveless orthodoxy. Loveless orthodoxy. Look at Revelation 2, verse 2 to 3. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown Weary, not weary in the task of discerning apostles. This is to say the church in Ephesus gets a 100 on their doctrinal report. Their statement of faith looks good. They've sniffed out those false prophets who would come in and teach that which is contrary to Jesus that which is contrary to faithful doctrine. Your statement of faith is spot on. Your, your preaching is good. Your Bible studies are good. But, but, did you even know that there could be a but something else in a sentence like that? Your doctrine is good. Your beliefs are good. Spot on, no false teaching, but did you come in with that category today? That you could be right about things or right about truth, but something can still be wrong? Look what he says in chapter 2, verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You rejected false apostles, but you lost this love. They opposed false doctrine and false teachers, but they were cold towards brothers and sisters. They were right about God, but they had abandoned their love for God. The honeymoon is over, and they weren't even trying to rekindle the old flame anymore. They had abandoned love. This doesn't mean it was just lost for a moment. This isn't just you were tired at the end of the day and you didn't have any love to give at the end of the day. It means they quit trying. They dismissed the problem altogether. 
This is not love, abandonment of love, like we, we lost our car keys and it's just kind of a happenstance. Let's go find it. No, it's an abandonment. They're not even trying to remember and bring it back. This passage is sometimes translated, lost your first love, as if something happened to the church in Ephesus. But Jesus is coming to the church in Ephesus saying, you have abandoned your first love. Right? Just imagine losing your car keys and just saying, oh, well, no big deal. Just abandon them. We're going to go buy a new car. I can't find the keys. I mean, it's ridiculous. That's what Jesus is saying. You didn't just lose your first love. You're abandoning it. You don't even care. Let's consider the love that is abandoned and consider if this might be us. Consider the love that is abandoned. Love for God is the chief first love for the Christian. This is what makes a Christian a Christian. Love for God. God. Jonathan Edwards in his book, Religious Affections, trying to discern between true and false conversions and the Great Awakening in the 1740s, wrote this. There are false affections and there are true. A man's having much affection does not prove that he has any true religion. But if he has no affection, it proves that he does not have any true religion. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means that you have come to love God and rejoice that you have gotten God. When Jesus died on the cross, the Bible says the curtain in the Jewish temple was torn from top to bottom, displaying that the 60-foot curtain was torn by God's own hand from heaven down to earth. God is the one who tore the curtain and made Jesus the new way in. But why did that happen? Why did the curtain tear? What does that symbolize? It symbolized that when Jesus died on the cross, God made a new way into the Holy of Holies. You don't have to go through a temple. You don't have to go through religious rituals. You don't have to slay a thousand lambs for all of your sin. Now you come through by faith in Jesus Christ, who is crucified the one lamb once for all in heaven and earth, For all the sins of mankind. Well, when the curtain was torn in two, and we can now go through this living curtain, Jesus himself, we can go back into the center of the garden, as it were, the center of the temple, the center of worship, go into the center of all joy. What's inside? What's past the curtain that that is so wonderful and, and so great? It's God. It's God himself. God is the great gift of the gospel to us. God and his kingdom is the great treasure of every believer in Jesus. When we come to believe in Jesus Christ, we get back to God. Understand the relationship between justification and love for God. You might say, well, I thought the cross was about justification for our sins and imputing righteousness to us from Jesus. Jesus washing all of our sins away. Yes, but consider how one author has put it. Justification, the removal of our sins, our being able to be called righteous through faith in Jesus. Justification is not an end in itself. Neither is the forgiveness of sins or the imputation of righteousness. Neither is escape from hell or entrance into heaven or freedom from disease or liberation from bondage or eternal life or justice of mercy or mercy or the beauties of pain-free world. None of these facets of the diamond is the chief or highest goal of the gospel of justification. Only one thing is seeing and savoring God himself. We're forgiven of our sin that we can go through the veil into the Holy of Holies where God is. Forgiveness of sins is not the treasure inside the Holy of Holies. Forgiveness of sins is how we get through the curtain into the Holy of Holies where God is. God is in the Holy of Holies. He himself is the treasure of the gospel. 
When Revelation announces in chapter 21, verse 3, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, we should rejoice. Because that's where the whole Bible is moving man by Jesus coming to die for our sins. Back to dwelling with God. When we read the Bible and it says the dwelling place of God is with man, we ought to rejoice and say, finally, what God's been doing all along is going to be achieved. Instead of kind of going, well, what's the big deal about dwelling with God? God is the gospel. God is the joy in the gospel. It should not have a greater affection in our hearts that we would be free from cancer or taxes in heaven. The hope of heaven exhibited here on earth is you can give me cancer as long as I can have God. I'll give the government all my money if I can have God. I don't need anything. God is my joy. He is my treasure. The Christian's first love is God. That's what it means to be a Christian, to be reunited with God, not to be afraid of Him, to no longer hate Him or to be skeptical of Him. To no longer look at God and wonder, well, what's He doing in the world? Why doesn't He care about me? But to look at God as having loved me through Jesus Christ dying for my sins. No longer afraid that he's going to judge me in my sin. Actually loving him. Friends, let me ask you this question. Can you say in your heart of hearts and in your mind by yourself in your room at night, God, I love you. I love you, God. Not thank you for my sins being forgiven. Amen, praise God. Not thank you for this home. Not only thank you for the things that you have done, praise God, we praise him for all of those things. The Psalms teach us to thank him for his power. Psalm 18.1, the very last verse I'm going to use today is, God, thank you. God, I love you. You are my strength. We love him for all kinds of reasons, but do you just, do you love him? Do we obey the Lord's command to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength? Now, some look at this passage and they say, well, This passage is not so much about loving God. This passage is about loving other people. This passage is about loving the brothers. They rejected the apostles. They've forgotten their first love, which is actually loving the brothers. We see that really in play here. Let me just say that creates a serious chasm in how the Bible talks about loving God and loving men. It creates a false dichotomy that doesn't exist, one or the other. Love for God and love for men in Scripture are inseparable. They're inseparable. You pick up one, you get the other every time. Luke chapter 10, the Good Samaritan shows that you can't love God without loving your neighbor, even a stranger. John 21, three times Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? Three times Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And three times Jesus tells Peter, feed my sheep. That's what love looks like. 1 John 4, 7-8, through 8, the text that we read today, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves God has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. You can't say, I love God, but I don't really love the church. You know what John says to people? who say, I love God, but I don't love the church. John says emphatically, I don't believe you. I don't believe you. You shouldn't believe yourself when you say that. You cannot say, I love God and hate my brothers. That's not how loving God works. That's not what it means for God's love to be in your veins. God's love in you becomes love for others. You cannot say that, but are you trying to? Are you trying to pass that off as Christian? 
I still have my personal religion. I still have my personal faith to God. I still have my individual relationship to God, but I don't really want anything to do with other Christians. I'm not seeking fellowship with weak brothers. I'm not seeking discipleship. I have no love for brothers and sisters in Christ, but I love God. John says, no, the love of God is not in you. It doesn't do that in people. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar, 1 John 4, 20. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. When you ask yourself, do I love my brothers, do I love the church, don't consider your best friend in the church, the people who are like you, the people who get you, the people who have kids your age, the people who share your politics. Ask yourself, do I love the weakest and sometimes most troublesome, sometimes most questionable, often most difficult member of my church? And do I love them? Do I love them? Beyond even our church, do I love my enemies? So God love, what God's love looks like. Jesus told us, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. You don't love your enemies. Don't say that you're a child of God. Point being, God has loved his enemies. First, we ought to be like our holy God and love like God loves. Christians, church, see first the danger. The danger to the church in these letters is not first that the world hates us, but that we would lose our love for God and each other. Our love for God. Our love for brothers and sisters. Have you gotten past the honeymoon phase in your Christianity? Do you feel the tug and the pull to just abandon love toward God and toward others because it's hard and it's costly and it takes your whole life? Well, you know what? It's just easier to just abandon it and hold on to right doctrine. I am consider myself in what's known colloquially as the Reformed camp, the Calvinistic camp. Oh, it's so easy in that little circle in the world to sit back and lean back and really think we got it all figured out. Is my love cold? I don't know. I can give you all five points, though. What a tragedy. What a failure. What a small, low bar for what Jesus actually calls for the church in worship. Maybe like in a marriage, you still do things. In marriage, you can lose the love, but still do the dishes, maybe mow the yard, still cook, help with the kids. You can still do all of the right things, say the right things, bring home flowers every now and then. Still do the works that a husband or a wife does. Still stay away from other spouses. You can be married on paper, but make no effort to actually love each other. You just abandon all efforts. Have you abandoned loving God? If you love God, you can say it. Faith in Jesus Christ for our sins frees us to run through the curtain into the Holy of Holies and be with God and say with no shame or no worry that he's going to point our fing his finger at us and point out our sin and say, God, I love you. God, I love you. What freedom there is to be in yourself, in your own brain, your own heart, your own chest, and say to God, I love you. And that's the fruit of the gospel in the Christian's heart. Friends, get alone. Look at God. Do I love God? 
It might even be a painful, yes, I love God, even though all these things hurt, but can you say you love the Lord? I love you, Lord. This is the heart of Christianity. It's the heart of those who are trusting Jesus and understanding the gospel frees us from our sin that we might love and know and fellowship and enjoy God. Have you abandoned loving others? No one's perfect. No one loves faithfully like God. No one makes all the phone calls they should make. No one serves all the meals. No one shows up in the crisis at the right time, all the time. But can you say that you're honestly, genuinely seeking to love others? Or have you abandoned that pursuit? Do you love others? Or are you more busy judging others' love for you? Has love for God and love for others been replaced with bitterness toward God and judgment toward others? Noticing always their lack of love. Have you done a loving thing which costs you but benefits others? Pandemic has pulled so much out of us. In so many ways, it's proven time and time again to pull out of us more love, more self-sacrifice, more of our love increasing and increasing and doing things and sacrificing in ways we didn't before. But I wonder if it hasn't just worn some of us down and tempted us just to abandon love altogether. Just don't try. It's too much. Did you once love God? This is what it means to be a Christian, not to believe some things on a paper only. The demons can do that. The devil believes true things. He knows them. He lies to us. But James 2 says the demons believe. They just shudder at God. They don't love him. Did you once have a love? Maybe it's one thing to just be honest with yourself and say, you know what, I can't say yes, but I think I did. Something has happened to me. Somewhere God got distant. Somewhere I moved away. Friends, don't let another day go by simply working past the fact that you have abandoned your first love. Do not drown that conviction with more Netflix. Don't bury and hide your lack of love with free stimulus check spending. Don't drown out the haunting, the holy haunting, if you will, that you are away from the Lord by being more busy. Even maybe busy doing Christian things, reading more Christian books. Doing more Christian Bible studies so that you can be more right about Christian things. All the while, your love for the Lord is dwindling and is crippled by bitterness, by lack of faith. Don't be apathetic about having abandoned your first love for God or for someone else another day. Consider the grave consequences of abandoning the love that we had at first. Remember then and repent. Go to Revelation chapter 2 verse 5. Almost all of the letters to the seven churches include the Tending by the gardener priest of Jesus with a warning. How expensive is abandoning your first love, the love you had at first? Revelation chapter 2, verse 5 Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent. And do the works you did at first. Remember and repent.
Oh, friends, remember the love you had for God before. Remember the days of the bubbling, chest-inflating, fearless love for God. Think about it. Remember that it was there and, and why it was there. How does something, how does remembering something on purpose look like? You ever have someone ask you, well, where's the last place you saw your keys? If I knew that, I would immediately go get my keys. That's not helpful. How do you even remember something that you've forgotten? Often remembering seems like something that we kind of do by accident. Oh, yeah, now I remember they're in my coat pocket locked in the truck. Now, Now I know where they are. But remembering seems to be something that Jesus calls the church to do on purpose. The word here literally means to reinsert it into your mind. Kind of mention it to yourself. And then keep thinking about it. How can you remember something you have forgotten? How do you even get back? What's that like? Have you ever put away an old team jersey that you used to wear on your sports team? Like I've got a Letterman jacket from my high school basketball team. We were nothing to brag about, trust me. Maybe you put away some old keepsakes in the closet. What happens when those things come out of the closet? It all comes back. It all, it all comes rushing back. When I, when I see that Letterman jacket a few times over the years, I've squeezed into it. I remember basketball. I remember it immediately. I remember the sound of the ball on the hardwood floor echoing through the rafters. I remember the swish of the ball going through the net. I also remember the sound of the ball hitting the rim and bouncing off. I remember sweat-drenched jerseys, screech of shoes on the floor. I remember high fives with my teammates. I remember locker room pep talks. How do you remember your love for God? Go back to the gospel and put it on again. Remember the sensation of faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. Remember the Spirit working through you to open your eyes and believe and see God the very first time. Remember the sound of baptismal waters. Remember the sound of the church gathered and their voices echoing off the walls and shaking windows. Remember being amazed by God when you saw him and you first realized he loves me. Pick up your Bible and mention to yourself again all the wonderful things about God and his people to yourself Friends, maybe you start with a journal page with the heading, why did I love God in the first place? Why? Then open your Bible and let it tell you for a few hours. Remember. Remind yourself. Get it back in your mind. Again, listen, let me just encourage you. God's people are so often so forgetful. We're forgetful. I don't, I don't, in my life, I'm so freaking, I don't even try to remember people's birthdays. I got my wife, my kids, my parents most of the time. I mean, remember, there's so many things. Remember, we are so forgetful. Over and over and over, for example, in the book of Deuteronomy, the time when God's people are about to leave the wilderness and go into the promised land, They're about to leave. They're wandering around this earth and go into the promised land. You know one of the things God says over and over to them? When you get in there, what? Remember. You're going to be so prone to forget. Remember. 7.18, Deuteronomy 7.18, remember that you were a slave and the Lord brought you out. Deuteronomy 8.18, remember when you get in there, everything that you own is from God. My paraphrase. 24 verse 9. Remember you were thirsty and the Lord brought water out of a rock. Remember you had enemies and the Lord protected you. Remember that you were a slave 
And the Lord redeemed you as children. Remember that you were in the wilderness and the Lord led you through the desert 40 years, never left you alone. And listen to this. I found this so wonderfully encouraging. Can't remember God on your own? On your own, you're just going, you know, I just can't remember. I can't recall. I'm so far. Deuteronomy 32, 7. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father. He'll show you. Ask the elders. They'll tell you. Maybe, maybe you can't even remember God. Go to someone else and say, can you help me remember? Can you help me remember all that God has done? Help me remember the gospel. Can, can we get together and pull out all the keepsakes from Scripture? And just pick them up. And can we remember together? This is what it means to walk with someone in a small group or in one on one discipleship together. You get together and you say, It's been a long week. Let's remember God together. It's been a long day. Help me not forget God today. Instead of remembering all the problems of the world, all my own sin, all my struggles, all my failures, all my fleeting love for God, help me remember God and why we love Him. This is why we gather as a church on Sundays. This is why singing to one another is so important. Singing together is a ministry to each other. Why? Because when I sing, I remind Ryan of the gospel. When I sing, I remind Marilyn of the gospel. When I sing, when we sing, we sing to each other hymns and spiritual songs to remember together God and to stir up again our love for him. I don't know how many weeks, how many weeks in my life I leave here and think, my love was so weak until we got here to sing and preach and pray and read and remember together. Maybe you go back to when you were just a kid in Christ doing silly things and you just loved it. You didn't care what anyone thought about you. You put scripture on sticky notes. You put them all over your car. You put scripture on sticky notes. Put them all over your your bathroom. You put it on your bracelet. You put it on your purse. You put it on your phone. You were just giddy. You were just, I can't get enough Bible. You just put it everywhere. Do that again. Act like a young kid in love again. Put a notification on your phone. Just let it go off every hour. Remind you, maybe something different, maybe the same thing. God brought water out of the rock. He gives water to the thirsty. That's why I love him. That's why I love him. Friends, if you will not remember, if you refuse, if you tighten up your bitterness and go forward burying it and hiding it and abandoning your love going forward, things will not get better, only worse. Revelation 2.5, he says, if not, if you do not want to remember and repent and do the things you did before, if not, Jesus says to the church in Ephesus and to any in Christ who would abandon our love, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And this is exactly what God did with Israel, whom he encouraged, whom God encouraged to remember, 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 and remember. And when Israel got into the promised land, they forgot God. They forgot him. And they did not just forget him like you lose your keys or you lose the plans 
for your weekend. They abandoned God for false prophets, for false teachers. And what did God do? He removed them from the promised land. And then God removed His protection from them. God removed them as witnesses for His name on the earth. And most hauntingly, He removed His temple, His dwelling presence from them. The glory departed just like in the garden. To abandon love is to abandon God, is to abandon your own eternal life. Look in Revelation 20, or chapter 2, verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. If you're spiritually alive, if the Spirit is working you, perk those ears up and listen carefully. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life. The one who conquers what? The one who conquers the temptation to abandon your love. The one who overcomes the love of the world and loves God. The one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Now listen, what happens when you eat of the tree of life? What happens when God grants us to eat the tree of life? Let me explain something. To eat of the tree of life is primarily about living forever. Living forever. You can turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3 or just go there with me in your mind. Genesis chapter 3, verse 22 to 23. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve have sinned against God. God has come to them, spoken to them about their sin. What's gone on? Why are they hiding? And then they, they take turns blaming each other and blaming Satan. And then Genesis chapter 3, verse 22 to 23, then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. They had eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. And there the Hebrew is very difficult. Gee, Genesis doesn't finish that sentence. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden, the garden of Eden, to work the ground which he, from which he was taken. Why did God send Adam and Eve out of the garden? To keep them from the tree of life which would have led them to live forever in their sinful state. Their state of sin is incompatible with the life of God. Incompatible with life. And so it is with the love of God. Lovelessness is incompatible with the tree of life. If you conquer, if you overcome, if you no longer abandon your love, if you endure in love for God despite the world, you will be granted to eat the tree of life. When we eat the tree of life, Christians, when we receive the healing of the nations, it's referred to, and we live forever in heaven. Listen, we are not then given a new set of loves and desires and hopes. Instead, when we eat of the tree of life, we are forgiven the fulfillment of the promises of what we love, the security of what we already love in life forever. Oh, you know what? I don't really love God now, but I think when I go to heaven, I'll be changed. Don't be foolish. Don't be fooled. To eat of the tree of life is to have what we love, God, secured forever. Our loves ebb and flow. Things in a year like COVID will strain our love. Don't abandon it. Don't abandon it. Your marriages aren't going to be perfect. Your friendships aren't going to be perfect your church is not going to be perfect. You're, you're going to stumble in your walk with God. Don't abandon love for God. Love for each other. Remember. Remember, remind each other, repent. Go back to what you did when you loved God. Go back to serving. Go back to singing. Go back to fellowship. Go back to prayer. All the things you did when your love was vibrant. Do those things. 
Let it be the honeymoon all over again. Remain in the love and the works that you had, and you will enjoy God forever. Say with Psalm 18.1, I love you, O Lord. Let's pray. Oh God, we give you thanks and praise for your word, for its stirring power, for the Spirit's precision and work. We give you thanks for the ministry of Jesus Christ who knows us, who knows all things, in whom are hidden the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We thank you for this book, this letter, this vision things that are and things to come. Help us, Father, today be honest about ourselves, about our own love, about our tendencies to abandon love. Father, help us know ourselves well, all the places that we think we're right and that we are certain about our love. Would you test us? Would you help us to be vulnerable with you in our own prayer today? In our own mind, help us be honest and say, I love God. I need to be careful. Or I I don't love God like I used to. Or I've never loved God. To be able to be honest with ourselves and so be honest with you in prayer and come to you and for the first time or again pray, God, I love you. And I love you because when I was loveless, when I was an enemy, when I was a sinner, Christ died for me. And, and, and by my sins being forgiven, I get you. Maybe you would pray that today. Maybe we would pray that together. God, you're the great treasure. My sins being forgiven, God, they get me to you. Christ, the living curtain, torn and rent on the cross, gets me into the Holy of Holies, into God, into you, God. Praise God. Thank you, Father. That's the source of all of my love. You're what I love, God. Father, would you help us in this? Help us be our prayer by your spirit. Help us have eyes to see, ears to hear these things that we might have a right relationship with you forever. We pray this together in Christ's name. Amen.